Hey there everyone, it is January 10th today, 2022, and I'm about to record Strike Boat episode number four on my audiobook podcast. So wherever you are in this big, beautiful blue universe today, I hope you are well and happy, and I wish you all the best. So sit back and get comfy and get ready to listen to episode four, Strike Boat. Chapter 2, Flag Headquarters. Outside the flag boardroom, Anderson Arthur waited with the AV cart, mentally preparing himself for his presentation. It wouldn't be easy. He was a geophysicist by trade and the son of Stephen Arthur of the flag board, but he'd never been one of them, never welcomed because the stain of his mother's Colombian genes laid on his skin like a stigma. He was brown. He'd been born brown, and as such, he'd never been truly accepted by his father's white family. Stephen Arthur had been a 25-year-old rich kid, the son of a senator, drunk and high on cocaine when he'd first come across the beautiful Luna. She was a Colombian supermodel, frolicking in a string bikini with her incredible, famous, picture-perfect body on the yacht of one of Stephen's fraternity brothers, and Stephen had fallen for her instantly. After a whirlwind courtship fueled by alcohol and opiates, they had married one night in Tripoli, and it hadn't been until Luna turned up pregnant that they'd finally sobered up enough to tell his parents. Stephen's father had been livid, or perhaps that was too mild of a word. Instead of welcoming his son's new Latin family into the Arthur fold, he had kicked Stephen out cut him off, and left him to fend for himself for the first time in his sheltered, spoiled life with a wife and a newborn baby to support. They'd run out of Luna's modeling money quickly. A lifestyle like what they were accustomed to cost plenty and could truly only be funded adequately by inherited wealth of the kind Stephen Arthur had grown up with. After little Anderson was born, Luna had difficulty finding the gigs. Her once flawless body had changed. It was no less beautiful than before, but she had matured. Her body had rounded, blossoming with motherhood, really, developing into something more earthy, more goddess-like, more voluptuous. She was still a stunningly beautiful woman, but she was no longer the stick-thin waif Gucci and guests were after in those days. And so the work dried up, and they were broke. Sullen and miserable, Luna had sunk into despair, brightened only by the joy of her baby, but he hadn't been enough. After a night of standing naked in front of a mirror, unable to see the beauty in her new shape, the maturity, the fullness of her own body rounded out, the perfection of her now fuller breasts and the gentle new curves of her hips, and she really had been a stunner. It was plain to all but herself. She cried for the jutting hip bones, the sharply visible ribcage she'd once had. Drowning her sorrows in vodka, she chased an eight ball of cocaine with a handful of oxycodone pills and slipped away. She OD'd, leaving Stephen to find and cradle her beautiful naked body one last time while little Anderson clutched his chubby fingers to reach out 
for the mother who was never coming back to cuddle him again. Stephen had tried, but in the end, there had been nothing else to do but take his little dark skin tone baby and humble himself at his father's feet, begging for mercy and to be taken back into the Arthur fold. His father had relented. He gifted Stephen with the money to start up a well-funded think tank whose objective was churning out research to counter the argument that the extraction of fossil fuels was consum- for consumption was harmful. Churn out that research they did, generating billions of dollars in fossil fuel company subsidies to put out paper after paper discrediting science, drumming up convincing-sounding arguments for why the burning of fuels, the leveling of forests for biomass, the continued production of plastics pollution, the race to the bottom of the resources, was actually good for the planet. The money kept coming until eventually Stephen Arthur became a billionaire in his own right, and little Anderson grew up with all of the finest things that money could buy, the best education, the best software and equipment, the best of the best at his fingertips. But no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much he excelled, he could never truly get the sense that he belonged. He was tolerated by the Arthur family, condescended to, endured, but he wasn't one of them. The stigma of his mother's Latin genes kept him from ever earning their true love or affection. But today he would make his father proud. He took a mental pause and a deep breath and went over again the contents of his presentation in his mind. The news wasn't good. Hell, it was brutal. There was no getting around it. The flag microfracking bores had done some damage that was catastrophic or irreversible, but he would come to them with a solution that would make them see him as an asset of value to the team. He was sure of it. He rubbed at a smudge on the back of his hand, unconsciously trying to rub the brown off, a habit he had picked up early in life and never really noticed on a conscious level that he was doing. His beautiful brown skin, oh yes, because he had his mother's genes and they were flawless. And he promised himself that today he would make them see him as a man. Inside the boardroom, boredom settled over most of the occupants, with the exception of Lloyd Preston, who had the blonde on his lap this time, her backside grinding up against his crotch. There was a look of delirium on his face as his hand came around her ribs and delved into the open bodice of her blouse. Cochran watched idly as Preston's probing fingers found their way to her nipple. The tinkle of ice in the glass could be heard as the brunette refilled Preston's cocktail with a silvery giggle and then Cochran rolled his eyes. Can we get this shit show over with or what? He asked Riley, singling out Stephen Arthur with a withering stare. Certainly, sir. Might I suggest we remove the, er, ladies in the corner? The news Anderson is preparing to share is of a somewhat sensitive nature. We need to control who has access to it. Cochran glanced back at the corner of the room where the blonde had begun to bounce lightly against Preston's groin. Cochran rolled his eyes. I don't really think that's necessary, Stephen. I don't think they're paying any attention to what's going on over here. Sir, Stephen said, rising slightly, confronting Cochran with a hard stare. 
you are not going to like what's happening. We need to control who has access to it. It's more than just your reputation at stake here. It's all of us. Stephen Arthur was firm. Cochran arched an eyebrow in surprise. It had been a long, long time since the timid Stephen Arthur had stood up to him. In the 90s, that had been, when one of Flagg's tankers had run into some ice in the Northwest Passage, ripping open her hull and spewing oil into the pristine waters. Because of the remote location, Cochrane had been inclined to gamble that the press would not find out about it or get a hold of it. Stephen Arthur had challenged him then, arguing that if they didn't do something to clean it up, it could be a black eye on the research his think tank was putting out, research that challenged the notion that fossil fuel extraction was harmful. And besides, it could also be a public relations disaster for the flag board that they would never recover from. Reluctantly, Cochrane had agreed, however, when they arrived with their crew to clean it up, they had discovered that the oil was gone. Over a million barrels had drifted off into the sea over the winter. They knew not where, and Cochrane had shrugged. Perfect, he had thought, and washed his hands of it. If Stephen Arthur was standing up to him now, then the news that his son had to share must be at least as bad as that oil spill, maybe worse. And with a sigh, Cochrane turned to Cynthia Jennings and barked. Get him out of here. Cynthia stood, all cool efficiency, and extracted the prostitutes from Preston's clutches, leading them to the door and pressing a room key into the hands of the room. Room 501, down the hall to the left. Wait for me there. With that, she pushed the prostitutes out of the room and closed the door firmly behind them. Returning to her seat, she opened her laptop and prepared to take the minutes of the meeting. Out in the hallway, Anderson watched as the two prostitutes stalked off towards the wing of the building that housed the lodging compartments. He took a deep breath. This had been the cue that his father had told him to watch for, the sign that the flag board members were ready to hear what Anderson had to tell them. I can do this, he said to himself, pausing for a moment to repeat it internally. I can do this. His science was accurate. He knew that it was. He wished mightily that it was not the case, but it was. There was no getting around it. Southwestern Ontario was going to flood, irrevocably and permanently. There would be earthquakes that triggered a landslide and a freshwater inland tsunami, and in the midst of the most heavily damaged area sat the nuclear plant. He didn't know what the impact of a tsunami on the nuclear power plant would be. It depended on how deep the wave was, how quickly things deteriorated in the cooling system once the power went out. He had the example of Fukushima to extrapolate from, but that had been different. Barriers put in place to protect it had worked, at least partly. Crews had been able to stay, the famous Fukushima 50, who had remained on site to counteract the disaster. Still, in that case, within four hours of the first wave crashing over the tsunami protection walls, the water level in the cooling system had fallen. The fuel in Reactor 1 had become fully exposed above the water surface, and the meltdown had begun, with the first hydrogen explosion happening 24 hours later. 
in southwestern Ontario, the disaster that was unfolding would be different because there were not tsunami barriers. The land on which the power plant sat was along the fault line itself, and there was no guarantee that the whole plant wouldn't be part of the land that fell into the lake. The fault line had been caused by the fracking, the small-scale covert microfracking being conducted by Sir Raleigh Kincaid and his flag cohorts, the harvesting of natural gas from the shale-rich Great Lakes region to run the line of cars known as the Fallon Thrust. The fault line now undercut the Bruce Peninsula in a southwesterly direction, running from Wangerton to Point Clark and the nuclear plant in question just happened to sit on the north side of the fault line, firmly on the side of the line that was most probably going to slip in the water. There were eight pressurized heavy water reactors at the plant. To Anderson's knowledge, there had never been a disaster where full catastrophic failures of all systems had occurred in an accident such as the one that was burgeoning in southwestern Ontario at this very moment. But based on the near miss at Fukushima, the damage would happen swiftly and irrevocably. And now it was time for Anderson to present to the flag board his findings. His primary objective was to convince them that they had to make the call to the authorities, tell them to evacuate the area. That much was paramount. He knew they could do it. Hell, Cochrane had most of the world leaders on speed dial. All it would take was one phone call to Prime Minister Wall. After all, Anderson had heard whisperings that had been Cochrane himself who had emplaced Wall in power. He had to convince Cochrane to call Wall and get him to evacuate the area. Sorry, I'm hungry if you heard that. There was no other choice. Millions of lives were at stake. Anderson squared his shoulders and pushed the cart forward. When he entered the boardroom and took a quick glance around, he felt the same feeling of insignificant he always felt when his father's friends were around. Well, you can't really call them his friends, he thought because any one of them would sell his father out for a buck if they thought they could get away with it. They were more like a cluster of barnacles, atrophied together in a clump, interconnected by the rigid web of flies and deceit and avarice towards the host creature, humanity, that they collectively fed upon. But their strength was in their adherence to the rules of the game and to making money. Anderson smiled shyly around the room. Hello, he said amicably, reaching down to plug the equipment in and turning on the smart board. I'm Anderson, your geophysicist, and if you'll bear with me a second, I just need a minute to get set up. Cochrane yawned, rolled his eyes, and looked at Stephen Arthur. It better be a brief second. My time is very valuable. You said he was ready. He is, Stephen said, looking at Anderson. Aren't you? I am, Anderson answered confidently, and he was. He smiled nervously around at them, saw that there were no answering smiles forthcoming from those assembled in the room, and cleared his throat, looking somber. He pulled up his first slide, a map of southwestern Ontario, with the finger of the Bruce Peninsula jutting up northwards, with the crystal blue waters of Lake Huron on one side and Georgian Bay on the other. Right. Well, this here is the problem area. With his laser pointer, he drew a rough circle around the whole southwestern Ontario region, from Windsor up through northern Michigan, up over the tip of the Bruce, 
down through Buffalo and Cleveland and back to Windsor. This whole area has been compromised. You will see that this becomes a uniquely distressing problem for this area here, where the nuclear plant is. He circled the location of the plant with his pointer. At the back, Beatrice Fillmore yawned, scrolling idly through her smartphone. Apart from that, there were no other reactions. Anderson pressed on. He advanced to the next image, and a pattern of red dots overlaid the map area. These dots show the Manico fracking sites. As you can see, there are rather a lot of them. But this little fella here, on the Bruce Peninsula, he's the immediate culprit. Anderson zoomed in on a little place called Stokes Bay, about 45 kilometers north of Wyerton, on the Bruce. Anderson clicked to advance, and another layer filled in over the map, highlighting certain areas gray. As you can see, this fellow, along with his friends on the Bruce, is right in the heart of the gray area here, the one that my team had described as being a no-frack zone on account of its geological fragility. Cochrane turned a withering glare onto Sir Raleigh Kincaid, who shrugged. We really, we get a really, bleh, we get a lot of really good quality product out of there. Cochrane glared at Kincaid, then turned slowly back to face Anderson. Yes, well, Anderson said, I can imagine. It's quite ecologically significant. Anyway, what's happened is that this frac site has caused a bit of a fault line that runs southwest from Wyerton to Point Clark. He advanced to the next slide, which demonstrated the fault line. Effectively, what's happened is a crack has been formed, a fissure that divides the Bruce from the mainland. The bedrock anchoring the Bruce to the mantle has been undercut along this line. Our equipment picked up cracks that had appeared a few days ago and sent word to halt fracking at Stokes Bay immediately. Might I ask if that happened? He was well aware that it hadn't, but he turned a questioning look onto Cochrane, who again turned to Kincaid. Not yet, Kincaid said mildly. As I said, lots of product. It's one of our best sites. Anderson looked to Cochrane who rolled his eyes before meeting Anderson's. Get on with it, Concord said. Tell us what you've got to tell. Get it over with. Right. He clicked to advance again, and the screen became a side angle of the Bruce. It showed the landmass that existed above the water surface, as well as the base of rock beneath it, rising up from the floor of the lake bed. Atop the landmass, at a site marked Stokes Bay, was one of the nondescript tall, narrow buildings that housed the microfracking mechanism, or the parts of it which extruded above ground. The cross section showed the fracking bore, where it descended far below the base of the bruce and into the mantle below. Anderson played the animation he had created. The animation honed in on the fracking bore at the top, then zoomed down, down through the layers of rock, into the shale bed. An animated version of the fracking process unfolded. High-pressure jets of water and chemicals blasted out of the bore and tore apart the shale. Natural gas was siphoned from amongst the spaces. Little green arrows depicting the natural gas flowed back up through the pipes to the surface. This is how the process is supposed to work, but what's happened in this area, and is in fact why we term this area the no-frack zone, is that the cracks in the shale bed did not stop, as they would in a harder material. 
They extended out into the shale, continuing on, stretching further and further away from the bore, traveling upward until they crisscrossed the entire substrata of the Bruce along the fault line. Anderson narrated this as the animation kept pace, and then he pressed pause on an image of the fault line. This is where we're at at this moment, right now. The Bruce is effectively undercut. The rock that has held it in place for millennia has been fractured. There is literally nothing to hold it in place right now except inertia. He looked around at them, trying to gauge their reaction to what he was about to tell them. Without that anchor to hold it in place, the Bruce will fall into the lake. Beatrice Fillmore guffawed, rolled her eyes, and incredibly began to play a video game on her phone. Cochrane was staring at Anderson deadpan. Why do I get the feeling that there's more? He asked Anderson archly. Anderson smiled, probably because there is. I mentioned the nuclear power plant earlier. Here, he pointed. The plant sat firmly on the lakeward side of the fault line. There are a range of possible scenarios that could happen when the Bruce goes down. At the low end of the risk spectrum, an inland tsunami of some form will happen. That in itself could cause a loss of power at the plant and a catastrophic failure of multiple emergency systems, which could lead to a meltdown. We have the example of Fukushima to draw on for that scenario. He looked around the room again. At the highest end of the risk spectrum, the land itself that the plant sits on could go into the lake with the landslide. We have no idea what could happen if a disaster such as that were to occur. There is no model or precedent for that one. He advanced the screen until the whole of the landmass known as southwestern Ontario appeared again. The Bruce once again a benign-looking finger of rock jutting up at the top. This whole area, this here, he paused drawing the same rough circle as earlier, encompassing all of southwestern Ontario and parts of the states of Michigan and Ohio. The ground underneath has been compromised. In this area, what's happened is the fracking created cracks that traveled up from below the aquifers. When the cracks reached the aquifers, which are underground water cavities held in rock, the aquifers drained. This left gaps and the shale has been shifting down into the gaps or air pockets that underlie this region. The Michigan Basin, which holds the Great Lakes, has been broken. What my team thinks is going to happen is called a subsidence, or a sinking of the landmass, as the earth settles in to fill those gaps. It's been happening slowly already, but we think that will accelerate rapidly when the Bruce goes down especially if there's some kind of impact from a nuclear explosion and shockwave. The fault line that's undercutting the Bruce, it's already started the process of severing. There's news footage out of Wyerton this morning. He clicked forward to an image he had just screen grabbed moments earlier and hastily inserted into the slide deck prior to the meeting. The image was Jim and Norma Olofsson's battered and beleaguered Buick bobbing in the debris of the crevasse that had opened up in Wyerton. A massive divide has appeared at the eastern end of the fault that splits the Bruce off from the mainland. As the divide that's already started here continues along the fault line and severs the Bruce off from the mainland, it'll fall. And when it does, the impact or some kind of nuclear explosion that could be the result 
will cause the Michigan Basin to break apart, triggering the substance as the pieces sink into the mantle. He looked around at them, trying to convey with his eyes the sense of seriousness of what he had to tell them. The truth is, we don't know exactly what the outcomes will be. There's a risk spectrum. I talked about it earlier. What we do know is that the Bruce is going down, and when it does, this landmass here is going to collapse into the mantle. When that happens, because the area is surrounded by great big deep lakes, it's going to flood. Catastrophically and permanently, it's going to flood. He advanced the screen again. The image that showed this time was a still shot of an animation of the Toronto Harbor, the CN Tower standing to its knees in water. The buildings around it were equally submerged, some tilted, some crumbling, all ruined. Anderson clicked forward, flashed through similar images depicting the level of projected flooding in Hamilton, Sarnia, Detroit. As he clicked through the scenes of destruction, he felt a wave of sadness and anger course through him so extreme he had to bite back the urge to scream at them. See what you did? See what your greed and your mercilessness did? Because Anderson knew that these things were going to happen. He knew because he'd been dreaming it, plus the cracks in the basin foretold it. The images he was showing, the nightmarish scenes of destroyed cities and flooded civilization, these had come to him in his dreams, and he had recreated them here in the slide deck because he knew in his soul that they would happen. There was just no way that the subsidence could be prevented. Not now. It would probably occur even without the nuclear explosion, with the weight of all that water sitting on top of the cracked and broken basin. But the nuclear explosion virtually guaranteed it, and Anderson suddenly realized that he was very, very angry about this. He was angry for the human life that would inevitably be lost. He was devastated for the wildlife that would go down with it. And on a deeply primal level, he was outraged for the earth and the water itself, for the crystal blue water, one of the largest sources of drinking water for all of humanity, which would become foul and polluted by the disaster once the radioactive material and all of the filth that society hides in its landfills, sewage systems, and day-to-day life were submerged in it all destroyed for this handful of unlikable people to profit from. He clicked onward and swallowed that down. Nothing of that anger could show, he reminded himself. The paramount issue of importance was to convince Cochrane to order the evacuation. If he could do that much, at least, he could do something to lessen the impact of the tragedy by lowering the number of casualties that would be lost. He had to keep calm and focus on that. He took a deep breath and pressed on. The next slide showed a sea of vehicles in a parking lot, all of them underwater, floating, partially submerged, some stacked on each other, leaking gas and pollutants in a rainbow miasma that clotted the murky surface. A bloated squirrel floated in it. The image was one he had found in the Hurricane Katrina files. He thought about the Great Lakes water, how it was now, clean and clear and drinkable, and he forced himself 
to swallow his rage by keeping his back to the room for a moment and wrestling with his features until they had turned back into an expression that was once again bland and impersonal. He had to stifle that down, had to get Cochran to call Wall and order the evacuation. He could not afford to squander the opportunity to do that. He took a deep breath. So you see, there is no choice but to evacuate this entire area. We must stop fracking at once. We must alert the authorities. We must give the evacuation order now, today, so that the people can start to get out of here. He waited a beat, looking around the room. Sir Raleigh Kincaid raised an eyebrow, then went back to scrolling what looked like the Dow Jones futures on his tablet. Lloyd Preston regarded him sullenly in the corner, scowling with his arms crossed over his chest, no doubt missing the pleasant company he had been enjoying moments earlier. It was Anderson's big moment. It was his time to shine because he was giving them a solution. He took a breath. My team and I have prepared a statement. We're prepared to show it to you today for your approval. It outlines how geologists in the region came across the fault line by accident, that we don't know what caused it, that we're just being good Samaritans and alerting the authorities. I have taken the liberty of having our hacking crew shut down the government seismometers so that we have a chance to control the data that they have access to. Once the government scientists see our findings, they'll understand that the threat is real, that the substance is imminent, that the flooding can't be prevented, that the threat of a nuclear meltdown can't be avoided, and they'll issue the evacuation order, get everyone out of southwestern Ontario. And then my team and I will unveil phase two. We'll get inside the evac zone after the collapse occurs and systematically dismantle the frac sites, make it look like we were never there, and save millions of lives in the process, he thought. That was the main thing. He didn't care if Flag got away with it. He just had to pitch it to them in a way that they would see that there was an escape route for them to avoid the public scrutiny. What he cared about was saving those lives, because if the evacuation order was not given, they would be dead. Everyone in that circle he had drawn on the map, which he now pulled back out, outlined in red, with the words evac zone stenciled across it. Windsor, Detroit, London, Sarnia, Barrie, Toronto, Hamilton, Chatham, everywhere in between, all had to be evacuated. Either that or all the people who lived in those areas would be dead, possibly by nightfall. He couldn't live with that. He couldn't bear it. He looked around the room, satisfied to see that finally, at least some of the board members were exhibiting some unease. Cochrane said Lawrence Fallon mildly. He can't really be saying that we're going to stop fracking immediately, can he? That would be disastrous for my company. The Fallon Thrust runs exclusively on natural gas. Sir Raleigh Kincaid spoke up. Agreed, he said, leaning back in his chair and stretching. There's not enough in the Manico storage tanks to keep the fuel stations full for more than a couple of days. We need to keep fracking. It's inevitable. Anderson kept his face neutral. He took a breath. Sir, if we don't stop fracking and evacuate this area, these people are going to die, sir. 
Millions of people, sir. We can't let that happen. He was pleading now, and he knew it, and he hated himself for it, but he had to keep trying. Sir, my team and I have a statement ready. They won't chase it back to us. It's all right there in the slideshow. I sent it to Cynthia before the meeting. Cochran looked at Cynthia Jennings. She nodded in confirmation, almost imperceptibly. He turned back to Anderson. Look, isn't it possible that you're wrong, hmm? Isn't it possible that things aren't as bad as you're saying? What we're going to do is have Cynthia here send the slideshow out to the board with the minutes of this meeting, and we'll all retreat to our residences, safely outside the evac zone you're describing, just in case. And what we'll do is we'll take a closer look at your findings to see if there's anything to them. Cynthia, be a good girl and distribute those, will you? Meeting adjourned. We'll circle back in a couple of days and see what good can come out of this train wreck. Cynthia nodded. Will do, Mr. Cochran. She clicked away on her keyboard, her father, Walter Jennings, looking on beside her. Kincaid leaned forward. If all this goes down, there's going to be a surge in demand for bottled water. That's good for my plastics arm and my petroleum industries for a starter. Sales have been down lately. All the do-gooders bitching about the harmful plastics and permit to take water that we got from the government of Canada for a song. I have several warehouses of water sitting idle since demand has fallen. The water in the lakes gets polluted like he says. I'll be sitting on a gold mine. Anderson gaped at him, shocked. They were already contemplating how to profit from this. He turned to Cochrane. But sir, you can't mean this. You can't mean that you're going to do nothing. These people will die, sir. It's already happening. The Bruce is in motion. We need to evacuate. We need to warn them to give them a chance to get out. Look, my team and I will clean up the area in the aftermath. Nobody will know it was us, sir. But we can't just let them die. Not millions of people, sir. Anderson's voice broke. He felt the tears in his eyes and he hated himself for them, for showing his weakness. But there it was, his humanity. Try as he might, he couldn't hide it any longer. The anguish his soul felt for his fellow human beings and for his planet rose to the surface and showed on his face. Cochran saw it. He stared at Anderson, cocking his head, an unlovely smear on his face. He was thinking of his resolute project, and nothing that this puny scientist said was going to sway him if Project Resolute was on the table. I'm just a bug on a slide deck to him, under the microscope, Anderson thought. They're not going to do it. They're not going to authorize the evacuation. They're not going to save all those lives. Finally, after staring at Anderson for what felt like a really long time, Cochran spoke. Fuck them, he said. If the whole thing goes down, the proof that we were ever there will be gone. Walter Jennings spoke next. Could be a massive redrawing of the map in the aftermath at some point as well. Could be new land masses, property lines of existing ownership will be wiped out. Plus there'd be all those existing mortgages to cash in on. Can't secure a mortgage with a home that's underwater, but you still owe the bank for the loan, right? Argument to be made that any new landforms could be had for cheap as well. We could snap that up, emphasize the contamination, get it at bargain basement prices. We could own the whole region, what's left of it, 
And besides, it could be good for my pharmaceuticals arm. There's bound to be illness, disease, and if there's not, we could manufacture some in the lab, some virus, and then market a vaccine or a remedy. Cochrane nodded. Good point. Might not be a bad idea to curb some of the population numbers either. Planets getting too populated makes it more obvious what we have and what the masses have not. Another plus is that there will be a whole lot of displaced residents needing a place to go. They could be of use to us. We could put them to work. It could be quite lucrative. So we're all agreed then. We'll sit on this for now, leave the area, then circle back after the disaster and see what can be done to regroup. Around the table, heads were nodding. Let me know what messaging you want distributed through the media, Beatrice Fillmore commented. I'll connect with the other big tech CEOs. We have a meeting later to discuss our new initiative, a social credit system like the one that we had rolled out in China. We've been meeting here in this boardroom already. We'll add this to the next agenda, then unite on messaging and make sure the algorithms block anything contrary to what we want the story on the unfolding disaster to be. News media as well. We control them. Cocker nodded. Good. Thanks, Bia. Team player as usual. Consensus achieved. Meeting adjourned. He tossed back the last of his drink, slammed his glass on the table, and picked up his briefcase, preparing to leave the room. Around the table, the other board members began to do the same. Anderson wanted to scream. This wasn't right. This was murder. This was straight-up widespread murder of innocent people, children, babies, animals, everybody. It was insane. It had to be stopped. It just had to. I can't let you do that, Eric. A quiet voice spoke from the back of the room. And as though he was answering Anderson's prayers, Boyd Preston stood up. Cochran stopped in his tracks, halfway to the door, and the air in the room suddenly became fraught with a tension so heavy it was palpable. Slowly, Cochran turned on one heel and looked back at him. Preston stood his ground. If there's a chance that what this young man is saying is true, then I can't let you sit on that information. I'm going to my office. I'm going to send those findings to my colleagues at the UN. I can't let you cover this up, not when millions of lives are at stake. Cochrane's rage burned in his eyes. What you'll do, he said slowly, is sit the fuck back down and shut your mouth. Await my instructions, that is, unless you want that wife of yours to find out what you've been up to all this time. Did you think that I don't have video footage, Preston, of you and the whores you enjoy at our meetings, the ones that I pay for? Did you think that I just provide you with those women for the good of my health? It's all there in a file waiting to be sent to your wife, my insurance policy. And before the rest of you get any goddamned ideas, I have one on all of you as well. So I, I suggest you stand the fuck back down and keep your mouth shut, Preston, if you know what's good for you. Preston bristled. Twin spots of color flared to life in his cheeks, and he hung his head briefly in resignation before lifting it back up and meeting Cochrane's eyes with a small shrug. If that's what you feel you must do, so be it. 
I'm not going to let you cover this up. I'm going to my office. He gathered his briefcase, slung his trench coat over his arm, and started for the door of the boardroom. That was when Cochran shot him. Cynthia jumped, startled. The clickety-clack of her French-tipped fingers typing away on her laptop suddenly ceased. Preston was dead. There was no question about that. Cochran had shot him directly in the center of the forehead. He fell to the floor with a thud, his eyes glazing over, his arms flung out to the sides, his trench coat arrayed on a swath of blood, gray wool, and silk by the door. Still with the gun in his hand, Cochran turned to the other directors. Anyone else got a problem with the plan? Anyone else want to go to the authorities? Silence in the room. Nobody else said a word. He turned his cold gaze onto Anderson. You going to make this a problem for me? Anderson slumped in his chair. Tears were streaming from his eyes, but there was nothing he could do. Not none. Challenging Cochran would only get him shot, and he wouldn't be any good to anyone then. No, sir. Good. Cochran crossed to the corner of the room where a discreet intercom hid in a recessed panel, and he pressed the button. Hey, genius, he said when Andrew Summers responded. I've got a little mess for you to clean up in the boardroom. Handle it property, and there's a briefcase of cash in it for you. Anderson suddenly rolled his office chair so that it was between Eric Cochran and the doorway. He ignored Preston's body and the stench of smoke and blood and singed hair that sung, sorry, that hung on a gray cloud in the room. He met Cochran's eyes one more time. Please, sir, please give the word. Please approve the evacuation and get those people out of harm's way. Please, I'll do whatever it takes. Please. Cochran once again stared at Anderson as though he was another species, a lesser species, tiny and insignificant, like a bug on a slide on a microscope. I said, fuck them. If the whole thing goes down, there will be nobody left to point fingers. Never waste a good crisis. I'm getting out of here, and I suggest you do the same. Without another word, he bent and picked up the edge of Preston's trench coat. He used it to protect his hand from the spattering of blood and gore that covered the door as he opened it and went out, his boot heels clicking their way down the hall. And that was Chapter 2 of Strike Vote by Heather Dirks, Episode 4 of the podcast. This was a long episode, so I'm going to leave it at that. The sun is shining. The sky is blue, and we are still on this beautiful planet together. Wherever you are, stay free, and God bless.